Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join join us Inside Inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice, and the show we're dissecting today is a forensics fan favorite. We're getting into Bones. We're analyzing Season 1, Episode 19, titled The Man in the Morgue. I really wish it was called The Man Inside the Morgue. Trying to sneak in our our title into that title. So Bones is based on forensic anthropology and forensic archaeology, with each episode focusing on an FBI case concerning the mystery behind human remains brought by FBI Special Agent Seely Booth for forensic anthropologist temperance, quote, Bones Brennan, played by Emily Deschanel. This specific episode aired back in 2006 amidst the months following the Hurricane Katrina travesty in New Orleans. The opening scene shows the damage Katrina caused, and the voiceover talks about the use of cadaver dogs to search for human remains across the city. Although this is tragic and sad, this is our first green flag. Like other dogs with jobs, cadaver dogs are specially trained to serve a very important role in society. And while their job itself might not be a pretty one, cadaver dogs play a crucial part in resolving many missing and deceased persons' cases, often serving as the missing link that provides closure and justice to grieving families. Cadaver dogs are dogs who are trained to pick up the scent of human remains, which is why you'll see them sometimes referred to as human remain detection dogs. Their work may seem similar to search and rescue dogs, but cadaver dogs play a distinctly different role. While the search dogs are trained to pick up the human scent in general, cadaver dogs specialize in detecting decomposing flesh, specifically the chemicals cadaverine and putrescine. A trained cadaver dog is 95% effective at picking up the scents of human decomposition, including buried bodies up to 15 feet deep. During training, cadaver dogs learn to differentiate between types of decomposing flesh, including recently dead victims, long dead victims, and even drowned victims. Because of the amount of casualties Louisiana saw, they did have to create makeshift and temporary morgues to work out of. These morgues were set up in churches, schools, and warehouses. Where Jess and I work, I don't think our county has ever had a mass casualty incident of this scale, Uh, but if it ever were to occur, we do have protocols in place on how to handle everything, and we would most likely have to work out of several temporary morgues like this. At the temporary morgue that we see Dr. Brennan working in with a medical examiner, Dr. Graham Ligiere, and she has an assistant on a video call with her. One of the morgue workers is in the room talking about a previous date he had with a woman. He leaves and Bones talks about how tomorrow is her last day of working in Louisiana before she goes back to working in Washington, D.C. Currently, it's Tuesday and she's leaving on Thursday. Her assistant says that some of the information sent for analysis came back from embalmed bodies. This is because bodies were unearthed by all the flooding and these bodies have now been ID'd and reburied. The body that she is examining now is 100% skeletonized and badly decomposed. Detective Michelle Harding comes in asking about this body. Brennan says that she can determine that the John Doe, nicknamed John Doe 361, is a male and most likely in his 40s. There is a single entrance wound in the center of his skull. Brennan asks an orderly, Sam Potter, to take x-rays and another tech notices that there is something lodged behind his teeth. Dr. Legere then knocks over a tray of surgical equipment on his way out. We then cut to Brennan waking up, 
cut up and covered in blood on her bathroom floor in her motel room. Her phone rings and someone tells her that her airport shuttle is here for her. She says that that's not possible because she's not leaving until Thursday. And she thinks that it's Tuesday. This woman on the phone reassures her that today is Thursday. So Brennan has no recollection of any events that happened on Wednesday, the day before that she was supposed to fly back home. I, what would you do if you just didn't remember an entire day? I don't know. I was just, this is such a lame comparison, but I was just thinking about how tripped up I get whenever I think... It's like, oh, like today for part of the day, I, we're recording on a Tuesday. I thought it was Wednesday, and it totally threw me off when I realized it was only Tuesday. At a doctor's office, she gets examined, and the doctor can see that someone stole her earring right out of her earlobe. Oh, that hurts so bad as someone with a lot of piercings. <laughs> this, this whole scene, I was cringing. Harding walks into the examination room where Brennan is and tells the doctor that she needs blood samples from the clothing that Brennan was wearing during the attack. She says that maybe they'll get lucky and pick up a blood sample from her attacker. Agent Booth flew all the way to Louisiana to make sure that Brennan was okay. She can't remember anything after Legere knocked over the tray of instruments, but this lack of memory could possibly be from her head injury. She has a hairline stress fracture on her right distal radius, which just means that she has a fracture on the part of her radius connected to the wrist joint, and your radius is the bone connected to your thumb, and your ulna is the bone connected to your pinky finger, for reference. She also has a concussion, a slight fever, and a tear on her right earlobe her right earring was missing from. Green fly care, because amnesia is commonly caused by a traumatic event, injury, or drug, and a person's memory before the event can be erased, and not just the ones after the event. So back at the lab in D.C., the techs received the x-rays from the John Doe skeleton. The x-rays showed a circular wound right at the midline of the skull. Brennan's assistant calls her regarding the findings on the x-rays, but she doesn't remember even sending them to him. He then goes on to say that the x-rays show that this body is male and in his late 40s, he's of mixed race with several anomalies on the sign. I wish I was that good at reading x-rays. I know, right? <laughs> the John Doe's death was not accidental. The pelvis shows crushed fractures and an entrance wound in the skull, as previously mentioned, but there is no exit wound. Brennan and Booth are out trying to get her memory back. Booth says that he wants to talk to Legere since he is the last thing that she remembers. They're at a restaurant getting a bite to eat, and the chef comes over to her and comments on her bruisings. He asks if she got hurt after she left the restaurant on Tuesday night. He says that she was there around 8 and left around 9 p.m. that night. He says that she had dinner with Potter, the orderly who took the x-rays of the John Doe. She insists that they go back to the morgue to talk to him and that he may know something since he practices voodoo. We learn that Brennan asked Sam to dinner because of the strange item found in the John Doe's mouth. The John Doe had an animal foot lodged behind his teeth. Potter says that the animal foot is a gri bag and it's mojo and that this specific one was meant to silence the dead so they can't speak. So green flag here. Alice and I had learned all about ritualistic crimes and voodoo in our school program. Voodoo embraces the premise that spirits can talk to us from beyond the grave. So voodoo is all about balancing of the forces. The animal foot is bad voodoo. It's black gum root, and you can only find this root in one specific place in one voodoo shop in town. On the car ride to the voodoo shop, Brennan's assistant calls with another update on John Doe. He says there's a narrowing of the disc space on L2 and L3. That's just your second and third lumbar spine. It's unclear if this is a congenital anomaly or not, but the body also has extensive injuries consistent with someone being thrown about by a flood. The shop owner tells Booth and Bones that the voodoo used was dark magic and that it's also forbidden magic. Although the shop has the ingredients for the spell, 
It's how the ingredients are combined and what the intention is behind the use. We learn that Sec Rouge, which is a real society of voodoo magicians and not just made up for this show. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. It's not like dark how they're making it. I think、oh, they're.、Wow. I don't know on a different lines、oh, of dark, but not、gotcha. like how they made it in TV. So in real life, the group practices cannibalistic ways and human sacrifice, which the show didn't go down that route, but they kind of went down the human sacrifice route.、Uh, the shop owner's daughter pulls up all the records of the customers within the last month who bought black gum root. On that list is Dr. Graham Legere. They are now having difficulty getting in touch with Graham, who is scheduled to be out in the field this week. Bones and Booth go to Graham's house, and she gets glimpses of memories as she walks through the house. They go upstairs into one of the bedrooms and find a man crucified to the wall, skinned and covered in blood. It's very gruesome. I was I like wasn't expecting a scene that gruesome to pop up. I was like, oh okay, we're here now. In the next scene, the forensics team is photographing the crime scene, bagging evidence, and we see them wearing PPE and using classic. Yellow number markers, and you know we love our PPE on this podcast. Booth sees Brennan's missing earring on the floor under the table, and he picks it up and puts it in his pocket when no one is looking. Actually, that might be our first red flag. <gasps> You're right. We didn't mark this as a red flag. He's tampering with evidence. Way tampering with evidence. I'm writing that in the script, even though I just read it. <laughs> red flag. Booth. Even though someone's your friend, red flag. Even though someone's your friend, they could be a murderer. Do not hide evidence for them. That's if you learn anything from this podcast. We like our friends, but we like securing the scene even more. That's what you learn. We like securing the scene and <laughs> proper chain of custody even more. <laughs> we follow the rules here. All right, now, like we've said before, we always try to guess who the killer or the psychopath is at the end of the episode. This whole time, we were all thinking it was Graham because that's what they're leading you to think. But the dead man on the wall was ID'd as Doctor Graham Legere. The way he was killed leads detectives to believe that this was also related to a voodoo ritual, specifically the dark sect, as we learned earlier, called Sect Rouge. Back at the morgue, one of the doctors hands Bones all the case files she was working on on Tuesday. However, the voodoo John Doe three six one case. Is missing from this pile, and that case file and body is also gone from the morgue. But the techs in DC have the X-rays from this case and are still working on figuring out what happened. We find out that the pubic bone had strike marks on it, and one tech was trying to reconstruct the pattern but was unable to make a digital positive because the extrapolation protocols can't resolve the gradient fluxes in the bone shading. And since this team in DC only has the X-rays to work with, they are not able to produce a manual reconstruction. The X-rays also show evidence. Of particles on the bones, but without the actual bones, there is no way to know exactly what those particles are. Back at Bones' motel room, she goes over what we know so far from Tuesday night. Legere was killed between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. She has absolutely no alibi and can't explain to herself. Where she was during that time period, Booth notices something on the bed behind Dr. Brennan, and it turns out to be some kind of voodoo bag filled with flesh, seashells, leather, and a human tooth, specifically a canine tooth. Detective Harding bursts through the door to arrest Brennan for the murder of Graham Legere. Her blood was found at his home, and his blood was found on her clothing. She's taken into custody, and Booth finds a prosecutor to defend her, and they arrange bail. Once Brennan is out, they meet up with Sam Potter and tell him the contents of the voodoo bag. He says those ingredients make a person forget, so someone doesn't want her to know what happened to John Doe three six one. 
The prosecutor comes back with the tox results, which came back negative, so Bones was not drugged, and all that showed was a small amount of alcohol in her system. There was a sexual assault kit also done, and it showed no signs of sexual activity. Bones looks at her photos and x-rays from the doctor's office when she went in for an exam. So it turns out the doctor lied to her about her fracture. He had just said she had a Coles fracture from a fall. The break shows surface tension on the outside of the bone, which was either defensive or someone slammed her wrist into something. If she had already stabbed her attacker, he wouldn't have been able to break her wrist. Back at the DC lab, the one tech believes he can ID the John Doe. He goes over what he knows. He knows that the x-rays show spina bifida, which is a birth defect where the spinal column doesn't form like it's supposed to, and as a result, a section of the spinal column and spinal nerves end up being exposed. And for that, he has a shunt from his brainstem down to his heart, and it was removed more than a decade ago. The team there has finally come up with an ID for those bones. They looked for evidence that was shown in the x-rays, which turned out to be a shunt channel. They cross-checked with Demort, and that's how they got a positive ID for this John Doe. This is another green flag, because Demort, which stands for the Disaster Mortuary Operation Response Teams, is a real team of experts in the field of victim identification. This group of individuals work together to handle mass fatality incidents. Without the actual remains, they can't discern what the particles in the bones are, and they can't make a reconstruction of the markings on the pelvic bone. At the temporary morgue, Booth looks up the ID for the John Doe. He says the man headed up a small voodoo church, rescued dozens of people during Katrina, but then he just disappeared. Sam Potter pops in and tells Bones and Booth that this man was a priest of voodoo and his death was done by the work of a bokor, which is a sect rouge sorcerer. Bones believes that because she found the body and was working on this case that the sect rouge was out to get her and make her forget everything. I wish I had a better understanding of how these ingredients worked to make someone forget something. I know. I was wondering that too because I was so curious. I was like for sure thought her talk screen was going to come back with Rohypnol. She was roofied or something. Yeah. 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 Which is common knowledge that that is a date rape drug that often makes the victim forget everything that happened. But no, it's magic. Yeah. No, (laughs) apparently in this episode it is. They go and check all the whole body cremation boxes with bodies in it. These cardboard boxes are just giant boxes and they're kind of the same shape and size as a coffin basically and you put the body in there and typically it goes just directly to get cremated so in one of the boxes they find the morgue worker from the beginning of the episode the one that was talking about this date with a woman he was seeing and this worker's in the box with the skeletal remains that were missing that they were searching for bones identified the skeletal remains as her missing john doe but the skull was missing they determined that the morgue worker was drugged and had a spike driven through his head this happened either during or immediately following intercourse they say and bones brings up that the morgue worker was just talking about the date that he had been on and that this woman must have done it but they don't know her name potter scatters ashes on the remains to purify the bones and as he does this, there's a supposed electrostatic charge of the particles that reacted with the bone. So the pattern on the skeleton's chest shows an emblem of a 1959 caddy broom. They then realize that they've seen this emblem before. It was at the voodoo shop on the shop owner's car, and that the daughter must have been the one that the morgue worker was seeing. The owner confirms that the dead worker was her daughter's boyfriend. They theorize that she was involved in a hit and run, and when the body resurfaced after Katrina, she asked her boyfriend to help hide the body. He refused, so she killed him. And they believe that she's involved in evil voodoo, And she has access to all the ingredients in the shop that she would need to create the voodoo bags. The owner takes Bones, Booth, and Harding to the basement where his daughter is, and they find her dead, staked to the wall. Oh, so gruesome. 
more gruesome. This is a gruesome episode. Right? While in the basement, they see the missing skull on a prayer altar with a spike next to it, which is the murder weapon used on both the John Doe and the morgue worker. The stake that killed the daughter is used for animal sacrifice, and they think that she heated up the metal first so that the heat would cauterize the wound so she wouldn't bleed as much. They think that she killed herself driving the spike through her sternum, heart, chest cavity, and spine. Which, that takes a lot of force to do by yourself. I was just thinking that. So, Bones then asks how much of the spike was protruding out of the girl's back when they first came in. Booth says around eight to six inches were coming out of the back. And the fact that the spike was red hot would actually make the body go through much harder than if it was not hot at all. So from this evidence, they then conclude that she couldn't have committed suicide because the basement that they're in is less than 12 feet wide. So if she ran at full speed and her aim was perfect, there's no way that the spike would have gone through everything, including her spine, unless she was pushed into it. This conclusion makes them believe that the shop owner is the one responsible for the murders. He's the one that's into the evil voodoo, and he killed his own daughter in the process. Bones rips his shirt open to find defensive wounds on his chest, further concluding that he is the killer. Now, I definitely didn't see that coming. I thought he was just like, a random character that came in in the middle of the episode. They keep doing this to us all these shows. <laughs> I should be catching on by I now. I should be catching on by now, but man, they have me on my edge of my seat. So I know that it was probably obvious since he's the one who had the ingredients, but honestly, I, I did forget about him. Yeah, I thought he was just someone they were questioning. And that is how this episode ends. So while Bones ended up being innocent of the murder, and while the idea of someone absolutely blacking out slash being in a trance and committing murder might seem something that was made up for TV. There are reports of people claiming that this has happened to them. So one instance is the murder of Barbara Woods at the hands of her son-in-law, Kenneth Parks, in Scarborough, Canada. We got this information from an article titled The Sleepwalker Killer from historyofyesterday.com, which will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more. On May 23rd, 1987, Kenneth Parks got out of bed in the middle of the night and drove 14 miles to his in-law's house. He let himself in and then proceeded to use a tire iron to beat his mother-in-law, Barbara Woods, to death, and he attempted to strangle his father-in-law, Dennis Woods. He then went to the police station claiming, I think I killed someone, and he also claimed that he had no recollection of the event because he was sleepwalking. According to his sequence of events, he had gone to bed, and the next thing he remembered was coming to in the police station. Parks did have a long history of sleepwalking that was often triggered by stress and anxiety. Parks had recently been experiencing some severe financial troubles due to a gambling problem that he struggled with, and he claims that this was the likely stressor for his sleepwalking that night. When Parks' case went to the Ontario Supreme Court in 1988, the jury deliberated for nine hours before acquitting Parks of the murder of his mother-in-law. He was later tried and acquitted again for the attempted murder of his father-in-law. While prosecutors claimed that the sleepwalking defense was ludicrous, Parks' defense attorney, Marilis Edwards, claimed that he was in a deep sleep-like state and that there was no will or conscious mind directing the horrible act. However, Crown Attorney Kathy Mocha argued that Parks had to have known what he was doing, but he may have blocked out the terrible events from his mind, which can also happen in cases of severe trauma. Needless to say, this case has caused a lot of debate and controversy, and we got the information about Parks' trial from an AP News article titled, Man Acquitted in Slaying of mother in law after he says he was sleepwalking. And I didn't cite this beforehand because the title of the article is a dead giveaway 
for the end of the story. And I wanted to be dramatic <laughs> and leave it till the end to reveal that he was acquitted. And if you think this is the only time someone has claimed to kill someone in their sleep, you would be mistaken. We also found a Ranker.com article titled 12 Sleepwalkers Who Murdered People in Their Sleep by Christopher Schultz, uh, which we will also include in our show notes if you are curious for more details about this case and other similar stories. So because he was in the sleep-like state, there's no conscious will or mind to do the horrible act. And I just mm-hmm. had to look up my own reference. That made me think of mens rea, which refers to criminal intent. So that's like you have intent behind your actions. Ooh. So I don't think that this defense is ludicrous at all because he literally had no intent on doing what he was doing and he was in such a state of mind sleeping. Interesting. Look at me in that law. Look at you remembering. But that's also if you believe that he was actually sleepwalking. Do you believe he was sleepwalking? I don't know. I kind of can see it. So, all right. This seems like an inappropriate segue, but I also have been known to sleepwalk and I have not murdered anybody, but I just, I've never actually told you this. So this is just like a pure confession live on the air. Um, I sleep eat. I'm learning so much about you. And I don't, I eat the most (laughs) ridiculous things. I think the weirdest thing I've eaten is dry oatmeal. I've straight up just ripped open a dry thing of hot cocoa and and I have woken up covered in crumbs and I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? Is it triggered by something specific? It's triggered by, so I actually, I thought I was alone in doing this and I never talked about it because it was so weird. I had to, (laughs) I can't believe I'm admitting this on a podcast, but it's actually really funny. In college, I had to keep food out of an apartment that I shared with three of my friends and we each had our own room and I had to keep any snacks out of my room in the night because I would just eat anything near me. And I was taking a biopsych class in college and we actually had to read a chapter about sleep eating and it can be triggered by stress. And so I did notice that it happened more frequently during exam weeks I would just be eating anything near me one of the funniest stories is I woke up one morning and I went to go have I think I went to go have a bowl of oatmeal and I couldn't find any spoons and I looked in the sink and there was just a bunch of spoons and then I looked in the freezer because I had bought some Ben and Jerry's the night before and all my Ben and Jerry's was gone and for some reason I guess I just instead of using the same spoon in my sleepwalking state (laughs) I got a new spoon for everybody. (laughs) So I know that is not the same as murdering people or attempting to hurt people, but I I can relate to sleepwalking and having no memory of doing something. But it does happen. So I don't know if he is being totally truthful because I can also see the side where this could be a very convenient argument for his innocence. But if, oh my gosh, if it is true, that's horrifying that you could just sleepwalk and snap like that yeah that is absolutely terrifying wasn't it you said it was his childhood home that he had gone to no that was a different case that i told you about that was the one oh man i should have included this that was the one who was an aa i think he was blackout drunk and he went to his childhood home 
that his parents no longer lived in, and he did murder the people who lived there. Thinking that it was his parents. Yes, and he thought it was, like, he woke up the next morning and thought it was a nightmare, because he's like, oh, I had a dream that I killed my parents in our childhood home, but my parents are still alive, so it must have been a dream. But later, he was in AA, and he realized he thinks he actually murdered someone, and he confessed to someone in AA, and it became a whole mess. And I didn't look up that case, but that is another horrifying and, and yeah. That is another crazy yeah. true crime story. Well, that is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of four green flags and only one red flag. So, in our opinion, Bones does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We would love to grow our platform on here. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod and on Twitter at InsideTheMorgue and DM us with any show suggestions. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.